Listener Production. Shares. Market. The S&P. The ISX. Stocks. This is the Motley Fool Money Mailbag. Welcome to Motley Fool Money, our very special mailbag edition. I'm Scott Phillips and I'm joined, as always, by the straw man himself, Andrew Page. How are you, mate? I'm very good, mate. Yourself? I'm exceptionally well. Now, mate, I've got a question for you. If mm-hmm. straw man wasn't going to be described as a private investment club, how would you describe it? I see exactly what you did. <laughs> it's a community of like-minded investors that uh, share ideas and research. Um, can actually earn some share rewards along the way for doing so and uh, hopefully reach mutually beneficial outcomes. How about that? Sounds like a private investment club to me. It's very, very much <laughs> like one. <laughs> An organisation. <laughs> org. <laughs> Mate, I let you shamelessly plug Strawman and fair enough too because you do this for free. I appreciate it. Uh, but I'm going to shamelessly plug something myself exactly. right at the very, very top of this particular podcast. I mentioned on Friday, for those who are listening to the very end, and if you don't listen to the end, what are you doing? That's the best bit. I mentioned that I have a brand new podcast coming out. I'm going to say I, I on behalf of The Motley Fool. We are taking the interviews that we kind of did, or the, the idea of the interviews, anyway, we kind of did about 18 months ago. We interviewed people like Warren Hogan and John Houston and others, and we're going to take that into a whole brand new podcast, mate. It's going to be called The Good Oil as in, you know, you give someone the good oil, so real, the really information. Love and we're going to be speaking name. to business leaders, CEOs, economists, experts, people who can kind of help us either explain how things get done, i.e., you know, the business builders and entrepreneurs, or the people who can explain what's actually going on and think about, you know, I said the the, the economists, property experts, people who kind of have a 40,000-foot a 40 view on the story of what's happening. Often entrepreneurs give you the really granular stuff, which is awesome, and then there is the the high-level stuff, which is kind of the putting it all together. And that's what we're going to bring you every, well, fortnight to start with, with our brand-new podcast called The Good Oil. So I'm pretty excited about start? that, mate. Starts on the 24th start? of August, the first episode drops. So that's pretty exciting. Cool. This coming Tuesday, and every every fortnight on Tuesday thereafter, maybe it'll end up being weekly. I'm not sure. I'm not supposed to say that. But at least fortnightly for now, the good oil. Now, to find it, this is going to be, this sounds, this sounds very, um, very self-serving, mate. Apparently because there's a couple other podcasts called The Good Oil. It's hard to get a brand new name. And because the first episode hasn't dropped yet, <laughs> if you want to subscribe in advance, and I really appreciate it because if this sucks and goes badly, then it looks bad for me. So if you do me a favour at least. I'm talking to you, Andrew, but I'm also talking to our listeners. Um, I'll do my you've, part. You've got to search The Good Oil with Scott Phillips up front. So it's just called The Good Oil. That's what we'll be talking about moving forward. But because there's so many and there's not an episode on there yet, it's one of those things where to find the, the series you need to search for. Yeah. So The Good Oil with Scott Phillips. If you can drop that in your podcast search, engine, I'd really appreciate it. Our very first special guest is going to be Stephen Kukoulos, The Economist, who is oh, a really the smart... The kook, exactly. A really smart bloke. He is a chief economist or has been for a couple of big businesses and global chief economist, uh, TD and Citibank from memory. Um, he was a prime advisor to Prime Minister Julia Gillard back in the day. He runs his own economics business now. Smart guy. I, I, I've already pre-recorded the podcast, so I can tell you it's really, really fun, interesting, wide-ranging podcast. Um, he's just a really smart, thoughtful bloke, and I really appreciate it. I've actually never spoken to him in person. We've, we've been exchanging messages on Twitter for years, but had never spoken to him in person, and we had a great chat for about an hour or so. Um, really just lots of fun uh, gave me a really interesting insight into some different parts of the economy I asked him some difficult questions some easy ones we agreed on a lot we disagreed on a bit it was just lots and lots of fun it's only the first in what's going to be a really big long term uh, 
project for us, basically trying to give people a chance to, you, know, we, you and I chat every week for a couple of times. We also put the stock of the week in this podcast. But for people who want to just hear a longer form conversation with experts and people in that space, that's exactly what The Good Oil is about. So search The Good Oil with Scott Phillips. If you wouldn't mind, I, I know I ask you every week to subscribe to this podcast, but if you could do me a favour, this shameless, shameless, shameless plug, but if you could do me a favour, I really would appreciate it. And frankly, it would make me look better with both my bosses and the people at Listener. If you would go to look for The Good Oil with Scott Phillips on your favourite podcast app, uh, if you could subscribe to that, if you could, wouldn't mind, if you think it might be interesting, give it a go at least for me. Um, I'd really appreciate you uh, taking a bit of time and, and doing that for me. So yeah, The Good Oil with Scott Phillips, I mentioned it one more time. If you can pause this and go and subscribe to that and come back, that'd be awesome. Uh, I might mention it again at the end, mate, just to give people something to do once they finish listening. But yeah, looking forward to it. I really loved the chats I had with um, with the people we spoke to. Also too, one of the things was, you and I get some really nice feedback in mailbags and stuff. This is a mailbag episode. But we actually got some really extra special feedback um, just, just unsolicited from people who said, oh, great of you with, that, with Warren Hogan, loved it. Great of you with John Houston, loved it. Um, and so we just thought, you know, there seems to be an appetite for people who want that sort of stuff. We didn't want to jam a fourth episode into this feed because it felt a bit like overkill and we're kind of a bit of thesis creep. Um, but if you're interested in hearing from some of those really cool people, you'll learn a lot. I think you'll enjoy it. It's entertaining and educational, hopefully. Uh, a bit like this podcast, but in a different context. So yeah, The Good Oil with Scott Phillips. There we go. I'll check it out. Good man. I really appreciate that. Should we get on to what we're actually here for rather than us plugging our respective things that are going on? Yeah, might as well. All right, let's do that. Might as well. Mike, first question comes from, by the way, I will share our social so you can uh, get in touch with us. To give us a question, we'll do that at the end. First question. This is one of my, well, kind of favourites. Uh, <laughs> G'day, guys. I'd like, this is from Dion. I'd like to ask a question regarding something that Scott has said in the past about ethical investing. If I remember correctly, you said that not investing in a company because you don't believe in their product or service is ethical doesn't actually make a difference. And I did. This is because the stock price movements don't impact the fundamental business operations. I did say that as well. Thinking further on this, says Dion, is there something to be said about how companies offer employee stock options to their management team? Considering a company's values and culture come from the top, wouldn't it make sense to not contribute to the demand side of a stock if you don't agree with their practices or if they are caught up in a public scandal, since an increasing stock price ultimately rewards the people in power. One of the reasons I avoided Afterpay, he says, was because I believe their business was predatory. This was when they were at $8, dot, dot, dot. Would like to hear your thoughts on this. P.S. he says, my wife says you have a nice sounding voice and I guess I agree with her. And Dion, that was always going to get your question asked on this podcast. So well done, mate. And uh, get out of your wife. Thank you've, you both for listening. You've trained the audience well. <laughs> mate, I'll have a first go on this. You directed it at me and then I'll, I'll throw it to you. Please. Yep. So, Dan, here's the thing. Over time, my, my strong, 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 strong belief is that price follows value. If a company is more valuable, more profitable in five years than it is today, you should expect all things being equal, the share price to increase over that time. Now, if it's super expensive now, maybe it doesn't increase quite so much. We've talked about lots of examples of that on even on Friday's podcast. But over time, price tends to follow value. In other words, the gyrations between, you know, the, the, the daily, weekly, monthly gyrations like Domino's, all over the place, but over time, Domino's is growing strongly. The price is following that value. It's not, not, not perfect correlation, but pretty close. So my general thought, mate, is that yes, you know, to, to your point about, you know, the, um, you're basically, are we, are we kind of benefiting the, the executives doing the wrong thing by buying the shares? In the short term, probably, maybe slightly. If all of a sudden we all wanted to go and buy Domino's shares tomorrow morning, then the price would go up because it'd be a massive imbalance of supply and demand. The demand side would rush the share price, push the price up, and yes, that would be rewarding the company. 
over the long period, over one, two, three, five, ten years' time, the chances that any one rush or otherwise, bump or otherwise in demand has a meaningful impact on the share price is much, 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 much lower. And so realistically, once you've either bought or not bought, your impact goes away. I could buy Afterpay shares today or I could not and my buying pressure might add a tiny, tiny, tiny fraction of a percent. Let's say we do 10 of us do it today. Let's say 100 of us do it today. Let's say 1,000 of us do it today. And then tomorrow, once we've all made our trades, what happens? Well, there's nothing left to do. And so it's only those who are buying or selling on a given day who set the price. Now, if you convince the entire market to have a view, then that might make a, some sort of difference to the share price. But think about Afterpay, to your point about $8 to 140 you're not buying the shares, had nothing to do with Square's takeover at 120 bucks. And that's, uh, I'm glad you included the example because it saves me coming up with one. Uh, I'm a lazy man, so you've, you've helped me out here. Um, you know, did, did, if you'd have bought or not bought, if we'd all bought or not bought then, would the shares still be $8 today if none of us bought Afterpay because it was predatory? No. And so to your point, I have no problem with you not owning it because you don't like it because it's predatory. That's fine. Does it have an impact on the share prices? Does it impact the executives? If it does, it's the 104th um, highest priority, highest highest impacting cause or otherwise of share price movement. So, mate, I yeah, couldn't. I, I take your point. If it was true, that'd be nice. I think the thing about ethical investing, like we all want it to be able to be true, so we can have those impacts on people. I just think it doesn't. Two things. I think it's personally, I think it's a waste of time. And two, I think there's a whole lot of greenwashing going on with a whole lot of funds who are raising money and charging fees, promising you these wonderful things. Because hey. If you want to be ethical, maybe you don't care as much about fees. So if I was a, uh, frankly, if, if I was a, uh, a slightly cynical, slightly predatory fund manager, and I said, what could I do where I could earn the maximum fees and have people who are sticky who'll hang around because they're joining my fund for reasons other than pure investment performance? I'd launch an ethical fund too. I'd do it tomorrow. If, if I was trying to, you know, if I thought I could charge, I don't know, half a percent to run an ASX 200 fund, maybe 1% to run a growth fund, or I can say, oh, I'm going to charge 1.2% to run an ethical fund. The people who are likely to join my fund are going to be less price sensitive than the others, almost by definition, because they care more about ethics than about returns. Guess what? That makes me really prof- make me really rich. So that's super cynical, uh, but I hate the greenwashing that's going on. It's I, I won't name any companies that are doing it because it's just it's crap. But, you know, the whole invest your super in a place where it's not going to have any harm. We don't buy coal mines and, you know, it just doesn't matter and it's not going to make a difference and they're going to charge fees and take you away from better returns on the premise that they're helping you do something good for the planet. It is complete bunkum and I wish it wasn't. I'm not a cynic naturally and I'm not anti-ESG or, or ethics. I think as consumers, we have a 100,000-fold impact and I absolutely think you should spend your money where it's going to have an ethical impact. I absolutely believe that's true. I believe it can make a difference. Investing, not so much. I haven't left the restroom for, error, for uh, um, being persuaded otherwise, Andrew, but do your best if you, if you care to. Uh, yeah, like, like a lot of things, it's complicated. I, I hear what you're saying. I, I largely agree with it. I, I think where ethical investing is a very broad term, but I think it mm. still does have the potential to have a, a meaningful impact. And the caveat being if, if it's a view that's widely shared, whether that's a, a, an entirely rational reason or not. <laughs> I mean, it just it won't affect what the business is doing, but it yep. will affect the, the multiple that the market ascribes to that business. And that can affect its cost of capital. That can affect fund manager, fund manager decisions and, mm. and all the rest of it. So I, I think I, 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 yeah, I wouldn't say it's totally irrelevant. I, I, I think it does have a little bit of an impact. And I think actually for the good, and I think as mm. an investors, we should, with what BHP has done, I think mm. is a good example. Um, I think with what Woolies has done with separating out the gaming part of its business. I think, 
yes, there's there's elements um, to all of that, but it's also I think there's a there's a hard nosed rationality to it as well. Mm. Um, so I, I don't know. It's it's a very it's a very murky area. The other thing I would say, just in in regard to um, Dion's question, was um, the he touched on employee stock options, and mm. I think that that. It's a bit off to the side as to what he was asking, but I think it is something that we should very much look at, whether that's through mm. an ethical lens or or just otherwise. Yeah, right. um, a lot of I think a lot of us can be really cynical and negative <laughs> towards these kinds of things, but yeah. I, I actually think a really well constructed long term incentive plan is mm. a great thing to look for when you're analysing a company. Yeah. You you know whatever whatever incentives you you build are the are the outcomes that you're you're likely to get. But you no, can, give me the, give me I'm, the quote. Mo- give me the quote. Oh, I, actually, I'm I'm forgetting it. You said whose bread I eat? Ah, oh, his song I sing. Song I sing. Right. <laughs> Great. Yeah. So so you can uh, put it this way: as a shareholder in a company, mm-hmm. if if my if the CEOs, my management team, do an exceptionally great job, I am mm. more than comfortable with them getting a bunch of shares. Yeah. Same. Um, as long as as long as it's carefully considered, one, on some on one end of the spectrum, people are just getting like free shares, mm. right? No matter what they, <laughs> yeah, right. no matter what they do, yep. and they're going to make out like bandits. And that's and particularly, they might even get incentivized to bump up short term results yeah. at the cost yep. of at the expense of long term and, and do really well. But at the other end, there's things where maybe it's measured against earnings on a per share basis and it's done over multiple periods mm-hmm. over the long term. Yeah. And there's vesting arrangements so you can't actually get your shares for many years out into the yeah. future. So yeah. you know that if you make any bad short-term decision, I mean, I won't get into the specifics, but that you, some companies lay it out really, really, really well. Don't they? And yeah. in those situations where, and where the, and the management actually earn, I mean, you, you want to give bonuses where appropriate. And if, if I have, as a shareholder, totally. really well served by having some great management in there, and they, their reward is that they also get a bunch of shares, more than happy with that. Mm-hmm. So it, it depends, I suppose. It does, it does. I, I like that, man. I think it's a really important one. I think we overemphasize pay per se, dollar pay. Um, but your point, the other one, the quote I should have gone with is actually, show me the incentives, I'll show you the outcome. Yes, um, which is even a better, better one, one right? Yeah. Which, is, which is basically exactly that, that if you... I, I, I've said before, if it was up to me, and it's never going to be up to me, like Warren Buffett, right? He's never been asked to be on a compensation committee for very good reason because he's not going to give away free money. Um, if it was up to me, I would make every CEO's bonus uh, delayed by five years and contingent on the returns over that five-year period. So Great quite idea. simply, if you, if you set up the business it. badly or you don't have a good successor in place, well, guess what? If you've got a couple of million dollars riding on what happens in 2026, you're going to be a whole lot more focused if you get the money at the end of this year. So it's, just, it's, a no, it's a no-brainer. Absolutely. It would never happen because CEOs don't want it to happen and boards are all captive to CEOs and bloody remuneration consultants. Um, but if anyone ever said to me, Scott, how would you design it? I would make sure, by the way, you didn't use things like EPS because these will grow earnings per share. If you borrow a whole lot of money, you do that tomorrow, right? I could double the size of any business by borrowing a truckload, I double, I double the earnings per share. It may go broke, it may not, but it's, there's no reason not to. So you've got to be really careful about the metrics you choose. And also, uh, really mindful about over what period of time you pay that bonus. And I would absolutely pay. I make it all, um, you know, contingent on a five-year performance after the date of the. So the bonus is earned this year, but it's paid in twenty twenty-six as long as you keep delivering. I love it. I love it. What did Buffett call? Um, speaking of remuneration consultants, was it Ratchet, Ratchet, and Bingo? The consult, <laughs> I don't the, know, cons- I like the remuneration it. firm. Yeah, I love it. That's brilliant. I love it. I love it. Nice. Yes. Um, all right, let's move on to a great, great question, by the way, for, um, for, from Dion. Um, by the way, mate, I, I, I'm going gonna, I'm gonna to go back to one thing just to have not the last word. You can have the last word. But um, the BHP spinning off the Woodside thing um, and, and others that you gave examples of, 
that that's almost my point, right? So BHP doesn't have doesn't have oil and gas anymore. Great success, we've all won. Except Woodside still has the operations; they still exist exactly as they were. They're no longer owned by BHP. So it's like, oh, hey, guess what? The ESG guys won. No, no, they just re- <laughs> they just rearranged the deck chairs. They they, they took yeah. this, this the chip off that square, put it on that square. So that, yeah. that's my although that's my general, although that's my it could concern. it could influence big long term infrastructure investment plans for for big mining resource companies to some extent too. They, they, I don't know. I don't know. I'm, I'm, I hear what you're, yeah. you're you're right, but there's there's there are some potential exceptions. Potentially, I think. I think you want it to be true. As my, as my view, other people want it to be true. And I don't blame you for that. I want it to be true too. I just the the, the, the hard nosed uh, skeptic in me doesn't doesn't necessarily. Think it doesn't change anything today. Yeah, so here's the thing, yeah. mate. You know what? You know what? So what? What I suppose annoys me more is here's the thing about ethical investing. Let's say you want to do it, and let's say maybe it's right. If you go and say, and therefore I'm going to invest in an ethical fund, and the fund manager is going to screw you on fees, then guess who loses? You do. If you say, well, I'm going to sell out of these companies and buy these companies that end up with a lower return, guess who loses? You do. I'm just, mm. I'm just not, I just from a, you know, if, if we had the choice as a group, if we could have a, a shareholders union and 30% of us get together and say, we're going to vote against everything that is bad, for, I, that's great. Like, I love that idea. Um, I've said before, I actually think, I think honestly, I think you have more impact buying those crappy companies that make a lot of money. So the BHPs or the Tushik, Woodsides, whatever you want to buy. And again, when I say crappy, I mean ethically, environmentally, whatever your view is. Um, do that and then donate the profits to charity. I reckon, yeah, honestly, to a, to a not charity, to a um, genuine, like, you know, an ethical or an environmental group who are doing some good stuff. I actually, I honestly, if you asked me and said, look, I could either put my $100 in BHP shares or $100 out of BHP shares in something else just because I don't want to buy BHP and BHP goes on to be a, a market-beating performer, do that and donate the extra money to, to charity or to something else yeah. anyway. Well, that's that's right, but the, the, I guess I'm just saying there's a potential for a false dichotomy in the yeah. assumption that by by investing ethically, you are foregoing returns. So I guess I would look at it more yes. from the view of if I'm going to invest, my first goal is to maximize my return. So that's, yes. that's definitely number one priority. But if I can do that through the lens, through an ethical lens and feel mm. better about what I'm doing, maybe mm. have some, play a small part in an overall longer term trend and direction of capital, mm. um, and, but still get great returns, then then I think it's okay. So I don't think in, I, I would like to think most of the stocks I hold are pretty ethically focused, but I'm right. not. I'm not doing it because they're ethically focused. I actually think they're great <laughs> investments. But I can actually have a bit of my cake and eat it too, I guess. I guess that, enough, that's, yeah. that's what yep. the point that I would make. Fair enough. Let's get a question from Hannah, mate. She says, hi, Scott. I'm an active fool who, after listening to the pod for a year, jumped ship, oh dear, from dividend investor to share advisor. You're welcome, says Hannah. Sorry, Ed. Um, Ed, Ed runs a dividend investor service. Hopefully he's not listening. Oh, he probably he listens, Ram. I, I'm, I, sorry, Ed. Sorry, Ed. All right. Hannah says, one of your recent SA recs has me hesitating for two reasons. Uh, I will. I will say this. Uh, she's she's been very kind. Hasn't named the retailer. I will name it because it makes the whole conversation easier. But she's she's doing it because she knows that members shouldn't be sharing this information. And she just want to give it away unnecessarily. So Hannah's talking about Harvey Norman. This company accepted financial support. She says from the government to support them through COVID nineteen and refused to return it when their sales boomed during COVID. As a taxpayer, this appalls me. Two, I've only shopped at this retailer once. I would never choose to again, as I've had much better customer experiences with the online retailers in this space such as free and well-organized delivery, free removal of old appliances and free removal of packaging. I can't imagine I'm alone in noticing this difference in customer experience. Additionally, this retailer would have overheads associated with a huge number of retail stores that online retailers don't have. Should I ignore my concerns, says Hannah, and buy the shares, given financially you and your team believe this company will beat the market? Or no, 
Should I follow my gut and give this one a miss? If the former, how do you, you and Andrew separate your personal feelings about a brand in order to focus on the positive financials of owning part of the business? Full on Hannah. Good question, hey? Mm, very All right, good Graham, so, another, ethical, another ethically related question. Kind of, right? Well, it's kind of both, both ethical and also um, customer experience. So you kind of got both, mm. both ends of this one. So it is Harvey mm. Norman, as I said. Hannah, thank you for doing the right thing, not mentioning the business unnecessarily. Um, I'm happy to give it away. It's no big deal. It is a recent recommendation of ours. It's a buy recommendation for full disclosure. Um, mate, what do you reckon? So they, they took, took JobKeeper, didn't pay it back. 20, 23 million, I think. Their customer experience sucks, according to Hannah. Or just say, you know, but let, let, let's paraphrase. Uh, and she's like, well, gee, I mean, I don't like what they did with JobKeeper and I don't like shopping there. And should I really buy it anyway? Should I ignore my personal experience and, and just buy it because it's going to do well? Or do I kind of take my own experience into account and say, you know, I'll give it a miss? I actually, I actually think, no, don't don't ignore your own thoughts on this. And I think you'd say this running the service. I'm, I know I did when I was in that situation as well. Mm. So you're putting your ideas out there and you're trying to support your ideas with a with an investment case. Mm. Um, but I think the best, the best way your customers uh, are served is by we're trying to weigh it up themselves. I'm very fond mm. of the saying that you can borrow an idea, but you can't borrow a conviction. <laughs> yeah, that's one of your favorite. I like that one of yours, yeah. It's just, it's so yeah. good yep, because great. everyone's perfect, everyone's got a tip, right? Even even us as professionals, obviously, you know, there's there's mm. ideas mm. out there, but I think you should you should never just, well, you either go yep. about it yep. one of two mm. ways. You either give yourself over entirely and just say, okay, I'm just going to follow every single thing that these guys say because I know on average it'll, it'll probably do okay. Yeah. Or I'm going to use it as an idea generator and I'm going to take their argument and I'm and I'm going to try and attack it. In fact, mm-hmm. I would very much strongly, no offence to you, mate, or to anyone, <laughs> attack it. Attack the argument. I mean, they, they, it might be wrong. Um, yep. And I actually, I, uh, for one, don't, um, I, 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 the, your concerns resonate with me to some extent. I, I'm on the record as saying I'm no great fan of uh, the founder. Yes, correct. Yeah. <laughs> um, for, for personal reasons, and I don't think I can be sued for saying it. I'm going I'm to put it out there. I don't think he's going to lose a, a second sleep uh, because of my, my opinion. I, um, I think it was horrendous with what they did, even though it's within the law. I don't mm-hmm. think it's, I, I think it's right. Mm-hmm. Um and for me, that is actually a part of the reason. Now, that's not because it's the right reason. That's just for me, it's it's one of the reasons to avoid it. And I think if, if that's something that weighs on you, then yeah, by all means, don't ignore it. Um, just just know that you know you, you might you might be you, you might might regret it down the track if shares go really well. But that's that's the other great thing with investing, right? There's so many. There's literally thousands of shares out there. So you know, I always think that. There's plenty of companies I'm negative on, even though really with given no other alternative, I'd be more than happy to invest my money there. Yeah, yeah. Um, but there are, there are. And so you can afford to be, you can mm-hmm. afford to be really picky with your shares. Yeah. And if it just, if it's not ticking some boxes that are important for you, yeah, move on. Yeah, great, great way to put it. I'm going to, I'm going to take the opposite line, mate. Not, not to disagree, but just to give a different flavour. So I, I had a mate who would never buy Foster's shares back when Foster's was a listed company because he didn't like VB. Mm. And there are people out there, we talked Domino's on Friday, who won't buy Domino's because they hate the pizzas. Now, I'm, I, I, so there's the gut feeling about how you feel about the business or how you feel about the customer experience. All I would say, Hannah, is I'm not, I'm not saying you should buy the recommendation because I made the recommendation either, by the way. So I'm agreeing with Ram on that one. But I would say when it comes to personal, so for example, um, I, don't, I don't like the idea of Afterpay. I think it's predatory too as one of our, as Zeon us, right? So I, 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 real, I, I would love the regulators to crack down on, on buy now, pay later services, right? I think, I think it's a bad product. I think it's unregulated and I think we're worse off as a community for having it. So that's, that's my personal view. At the same time, people are signing up for a million miles an hour. The shares went from eight to 120 and 
you know, it, whether I like it or not, people are using the service. By the way, I mentioned ethical investing. I own shares in Australian Ethical, right? If I was going to be completely cynical and, and self-serving, I would have been bigging up ethical investing to the, to the moon. But I also reckon people are going to keep doing it. So if people are going to keep sending their money to Australian Ethical to invest ethically, in air quotes, then that's their choice. And I think Australian Ethical will do well. I think people shouldn't do as much as they do, but I'm happy to own the shares because I think they'll do well. So my experience, if I say I don't think ethical investing helps, I could say I'm not going to invest in Australian Ethical. Uh, I'd said, I don't like after I didn't invest in them and the shares went from eight to 120. And I said, people don't like Domino's pizza. The What I would say is separate out, if you can, if you're prepared to, your own experiences as a consumer in particular from that company's consumers. So I know people love the hell out of Afterpay. I don't use it. I use a, actually I've started using PayPal's pay in for just because it's free and why wouldn't I? Um, but um, that's on my other credit card anyway. So I was like, well, sure, knock yourselves out. Um, I'm a shareholder of PayPal too, which is also a bit weird because I'm actually costing my own self money by using a service that means I've got to carry debt for longer. Uh, it's a weird, weird world we're in. Uh, so yeah, I look, you know, so people drink VB. My mate was wrong to only avoid investing in Sophos because he didn't like the beer, right? There is the reality of if you if you are if you are the everyman, right? If, if I'm if I'm the average average person then my preferences are likely to be everyone else's preferences and that's probably a good guide. But to your point, Hannah, you've got, there are hundreds of thousands of people, tens of thousands who shop at Harvey Norman every year. If you think that the experience is getting worse or others are better and you think they're going to lose customers because of your experience, then that's a really good scuttlebutt as Peter Lynch said. If you're like, oh, you know what, this sucks and I can see the competition coming and I think Harvey Norman are really going to suffer as a result, then that's, that's an objective view and you should absolutely use your own insights and choose, if you, if you choose to not invest, that's completely fine. No skin off my nose. And as Andrew said, I love our members doing their own work and make sure they're comfortable with the recommendation. But as I said, I own Australian Ethical, not because, you know, as, as an investor, I don't like the idea. But as someone who's a business analyst who can see more people using that business in the future, even if I don't like it, that's a different question. So I guess the question for you, Hannah, is do you believe your experience is typical and is going to cost the company customers? If yes, then you, you, you're, on, you're on the right track. If you're simply saying, well, you know what? I don't like that particular customer experience, but I'm not the average person or maybe maybe I'm not, or even if I am, but the other people are still happily shopping there. While you were there having a bad experience, there are people who are probably there for the third, fourth, fifth or sixth time, then you're, you're in a good place. I think that's how I would, that's how I would probably try and weigh those, both those issues up is, is try and balance both in your mind. Do you have a good experience? Yes, no. By the way, if you have a great experience, but everyone else has a terrible experience also. You, know, you might have loved Kodak cameras, didn't stop the company going broke. Uh, you might be a film buff who loved, you know, we've talked about VHS and Betamax before, Andrew. You could have been a, a video purist who said, you know what, Betamax is such great quality. Man, I'd never buy that VHS stuff. It's terrible. I, I hate it. It's bad quality. I'd no, I'd, I'm not going to buy a VHS because, you know, the technology sucks. This is much better. In the fullness of time, we know that even though it was a worse uh, technical option, according to those who know these things, VHS still won. So just be a little bit careful with your own experience because if it's not representative, on either side, either you love it and they hate it or you hate it and they love it, it can potentially mislead you as an investor as well. Is that fair, mate? Yep, that's all fair. Yep. Um, last thing I would say just on the service thing, by the way, is you mentioned the point about you can buy everything. I think our, what I want to say about our members, and I'm sure you agree, mate, in general, is you either need to do your own research, as you recommended, and I think that's wonderful advice, or conversely, choose not to and buy everything on faith and go with it. If you get caught in between those two, you know, one foot in the boat, one foot on the wharf, that's when you're in trouble. So if, if your strategy, be like dollar cost averaging, if your strategy is, I'm going to buy every share advisor recommendation no matter what and get the average return, and that's it's just a mechanical process, then I would actually encourage you to buy every rec. 
But if you're not going to buy every rack, then you should do exactly as you say, mate, and say, do I like it? Do I feel good about it? And if something goes badly, with, if volatility, like the Domino's thing, three years in the wilderness, then I want to make sure I'm ready to, to hold because I believe in it if I lose faith in the guys at Share Advisor. Yep. Conrad writes, Dear Andrew and Scott, I'm a long-time listener, first-time questioner. How good's that? You know what I love about this, mate, is there's a whole generation of people who don't know the phrase long-time listener, first-time caller. And that makes mm-hmm. me slightly sad, but also if there's fewer people listening to Shock Shock Talk Pac-Man, that's not so bad. Thanks for all your great work, says Conrad. Really enjoying the show. I have two questions. On your most recent episode, you gave Capital Letters general advice. He knows that we can't give personal advice about asset allocation. If someone were to invest a sum of money for their children, both of you gave a big nod of approval to the NASDAQ 100 ETF, to the Vanguard International ETF, and to an S&P 500 ETF. I looked at the underlying companies these three ETFs invest in, and I'm confused as to why you would invest in all three, given they have essentially the same companies in them. Almost all companies in the S&P 500 are in the Vanguard fund, as are almost all NASDAQ 100 companies. Are you not just tripling up by investing in all three? Why wouldn't you just invest in all or invest more in the global ETF, thereby covering all your bases. I note that just seven tech companies make up 16% of the Vanguard Fund, 25% of S&P, and 50% of the NASDAQ 100. Good question, mate. Um, I'll I'll take the first first swing at this one. The answer is, Conrad, that we want the extra stuff that the others have. So if you only own NASDAQ, you don't get the extra stuff from the S&P 500. And if you only own the S&P 500, you don't get the global exposure of the Vanguard ETF. So yes, you are doubling up on the stuff that's there. Arguably, you could buy, if there was such a thing, the NASDAQ 100, then an S&P 500 X NASDAQ, and then a global fund X US. You could probably do that and separate them out. But when you say tripling up, you're kind of, you're not tripling up in the same way you might imagine. Let's say you put three times as much money into one ETF. You're kind of tripling your investment in those companies in the ETF, right? So, so it's kind of the same thing. What we are effectively doing is getting a higher weighting of those companies in the other two ETFs. So if you buy the Vanguard ETF, 60% of that's US. So 40% is not. And that's important. But we, I, I, personally, I want extra exposure, more than 60% to the S&P 500 and more than that again to the NASDAQ because that's kind of roughly the order in which I expect performance to go. I think the NASDAQ will beat the S&P. I think the S&P will beat the international. But I also want exposure and diversification across those ETFs. So that's why, effectively, as you say, you're getting a higher weighting of those that you're doubling or tripling up on. That's absolutely true. But I'm actually really happy with that. Strategically, that's exactly what I'm looking for and what I'm getting. But as you said, if all you wanted was that, then you could simply go with the, the VGS ETF anyway and ignore the others. Frankly, though, I, I, you know, I, I think the NASDAQ companies will do really, really well. Uh, I think it, you know, it'll be a greater contributor to the global fund. So I want more of that. Your thoughts, mate? I've got absolutely nothing to add. No, I think you summed it up well. The companies that are being spoken of are probably ones I would be, as you say, happy to have an extra weighting of. Mm -hmm. Um, They are very dominant companies with a long way to run, very attractive economics and, you know, it's kind of cool. But, yeah, but with all the others, you're getting the rest of it. But at the same time, if someone had just went global, I wouldn't fault that either. Oh, yeah, exactly, that's right. Yep, and and. Conrad's right. I mean, you, over, what really matters is, you know, is, is if you could just have a nice clear look through of the weighting that you've got all together yeah. when, yeah. when you aggregate all of them. And as you say, so those companies obviously got a higher rating than they otherwise would, yeah. but it's probably still a really good spread. So, yeah, yeah no, nothing to add. Beautiful. Mate, I'll let you have first got this one. Then his second question is regarding hedging, he says, which has been bugging him for a long time and he can't get a decent answer from any of the professionals. 
the Vanguard, the NASDAQ and the S&P all have a hedged and an unhedged ETF in Australia. When would an hedged option be appropriate? Why are you guys invested in the hedged or and or unhedged options? Thanks for the advice. Much appreciated. Best regards, Conrad. So, mate, oh, I've is, got a... Go yeah. on. I've oh, got a very firm answer on that. I, I think unhedged is what okay. you want to go. So let's, let's go with and hedged and unhedged first. The, the definitions of both, let, let, give me that first and then we can go into what and why. So some are constructed to remove the currency risk. So these ETFs will be investing all around the world and the Aussie dollar is going to move against those local currencies. So you can buy futures instruments and other things to, that basically just offset any, any currency movement. Right. Um, so it sounds really attractive because you're getting rid of, you're getting rid of one element of risk. Mm-hmm. Um, but there's a couple of things that you have to bear in mind there. The first, um, the first thing is that there's no, there's no such thing as a free lunch in finance, <laughs> right? And so you've got to pay... For that, for that insurance, if you will, and a lot of the time that insurance doesn't pay off. In, in fact, it, you, you, as much as currency fluctuations can hurt you, they can really help you. Mm-hmm. So you you have to bear this in mind. <laughs> Currencies, too, as a general rule, they're not like shares or economies that just, on average, tend to grow all the time. So if you look at the Aussie dollar over the last 30, 40 years, yeah, it's got mm-hmm. points where it was above a dollar ten, and mm-hmm. the other points where it was in the fifty cents, but it kind of goes sideways. Yeah. So if you're a long-term investor, you end up paying all of this insurance that sometimes works, sometimes doesn't work. Um, you know what I mean? And it just, yeah, it just it reduces everything. So yeah. I would say the exception to the rule might be if you were necessarily investing under a shorter time frame yeah, gotcha, and, you, and you did want to remove that aspect of it. Yep. Um, but even then, I, if you were someone who's saying, I've got some money I want to put into an ETF for six months, I'd still say, for God's sake, don't do that. I don't care what the <laughs> ETF is because, yeah. because the market could be down 50%. So I just think the market is just, you just don't go there for anything yep. short term. And if you are going to go there long term, why go hedged? It'll probably cost you in the long run. Mm. So I, yeah, I, I, I'm going to add to your time frame question actually. I do it from a different perspective, but the same kind of broad approach. And that is not so much whether you're doing a shorter time frame per se, although that's important. But even on a, even on that medium term time frame, let's say five years, right? We we say to people, look, you know what? You don't want to you don't want to invest any money in that you need in the short term because if the market goes against you, you might you have sell and you you know you, you lock in some losses and you get a worse result. They've just hung out. All I would say is you might find that five years is enough to avoid that, but it may just be that in year five the Australian dollar plummets, <laughs> and so or sorry, mm. in this case actually goes up because it's the reverse coming home. And if that case you're like, oh man, the market has doubled, but the dollar's halved, or vice versa. So I'm not, you know, now I've got to sell. Even though I waited five years for the market to do the right thing, I just picked the currency really badly. So I wouldn't say to people, I, I agree with you, but the way I phrase it is not so much whether you've got a short time frame, but you need to have an extra long time frame investing internationally because you have to allow for the fact that you want to sell at an advantageous price for the shares and then bring the money home at an advantageous exchange rate. Can so I, both I'll of have those another- things are true. Go on, yeah. Yeah, and because there is something of a reversion to the mean with currencies, mm-hmm. even when the currency does go against you longer term. So let's say over five years, the Aussie dollar, mm-hmm. just to pick some arbitrary numbers, goes from 70 cents up to 85 cents. Mm-hmm. Um, that's that's, that's going to hurt. Yeah. But <laughs> but you, you at the same time have had five years exposure to uh, an international mm-hmm. market. It's probably mm-hmm. done pretty well over that kind of time frame. So you still – it's not going to be a terrible outcome overweight. It's not like mm-hmm. – it's not – it's going to be a very bizarre world where the Aussie dollar goes to two US in a short period of time. Like the fundamental underpinnings of our global economic structure, the, 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 things, the things that would have to change for that to be true, 
with almost almost un, unforeseeable. Could it be ninety cents? Could it be sixty cents? Could it be forty eight cents? I don't know. But it's mm-hmm. it's wherever it moves, and even if it moves in the in the most extreme of those kind of scenarios, it's mm-hmm. probably still going to be worthwhile having that offshore exposure over five ten years. Yeah, I think that's right. I think that's right. So that yeah, I, I would. I so just to answer the question directly, I also go unhedged for exactly the same reasons you do, mate. Uh, otherwise, you're paying for the insurance, which lowers your overall returns, and the longer you do it for the lower your returns are going to be. And frankly, the longer you do it for, the more likely you are to get the average result of unhedged anyway that you get with hedged. So, you know, there's, mm, the, yeah. you smooth out like any any investing, the longer you do it, well, I'll say any, that's too generic. There are things that just go down and keep going down. But any good investing, the longer you do it, the less chance volatility is going to impact you and the more chance the underlying value makes a difference. Mm. So, yep, yep, I would absolutely go unhedged every day. Um, as you say, mate, except if you, have, you want to bring the money back on a time frame that doesn't allow you to allow for both share price and currency volatility, you don't you don't live through one and get whacked by the other if you have a a hard withdrawal date. So whatever period of time you think you want the Australian shares for, the other thing I would say by the way is you can you can get around that by basically selling your Australian assets first if if the same applies, right? So if it's not the right time to sell US assets, just treat them all differently. You don't want to worry about currency too much, but just be just be mindful about it. Yep. Cool, the great question, Conrad. I love it. All the great questions, plural. Motley Fool Money. For more, subscribe to the free newsletter at fool.com.au forward slash listener. Hey, um, question now from... Who have we got next? Here we go. Question from Nick. Hi, Scott Andrew. I've recently finished reading Pat Dorsey's The Little Book That Builds Wealth. After your book recommendation podcast, he says, I'm a slow reader, uh, and had a question regarding research. Now, this is a really good one. After reading a lot about the different types of moats, which all seem to make a lot of sense, how do I tackle learning about that company or sector in such detail? A lot of the moat examples given in the book, I would never have found out about without working in the sector or knowing someone in the industry. Is it simply a matter of plugging away on the internet, looking through financial reports, company announcements, or do companies like to boast or hide their moats? Networking moats, scale moats seem easy to find compared to others like patents, super effective processes, resource locations, government regulations, etc. Thanks so much for all your opinions, general advice and banter. I'm 23, bastard, and the, at the moment and started investing two years ago. But my interest and enthusiasm has greatly surged thanks to the both of you. And I'm sure lots of other people are genuinely grateful for your service. Cheers from Nick. Thanks, Nick. Really appreciate it. He says, P.S. I just started reading one up on Wall Street as per your recommendation as well. Mate, you are absolutely on the right path here, Nick. Uh, Thanks for the kind words, mate. We appreciate it. Um, It's a good question, mate, because you and I, well, we've been around the block a few times and we don't necessarily take it for granted. The great thing about investing, and Nick, you'll... The only advantage I have over you, mate, you've got you've got many, many years on me, uh, which I would swap for very large sums of money given the choice. The one thing I do have over you at the moment, at least, is investing knowledge is cumulative. So you're not learning again every every month or every week or every year. You, you get to ag- aggregate your knowledge. And as you learn something else, you kind of put it on top of what you already know and it helps to refine and improve your knowledge. So that You've got that to look forward to as well as aging and going grey. Um, mate, uh, Ram, what do you reckon? How do you go about learning about where the moats are? Well, I think uh, just reading, as mm. as the listener has done, and that's a great book, by yep. the way. It, that, it, why it's great is because, I mean, that while every example is unique, you, you will see certain characteristics yeah, that, as you say, over time just become more familiar. Yeah. One of the things, before getting into a discussion on moats, one of the things that you can do is just look at some some simple metrics that are easy to find for, for certain mm. companies. Mm. Things like what's the net margin? So whatever they make, whether they make $10 million a year or $100 billion a year, what's 
what's the net profit in the pockets of shareholders on a cash basis at the end of every year? That that alone tells you something. A company that's like Taz, yeah, good <laughs> point. Prometicus drink, yeah, oh, that's a forty. That, that's a sorry, thirty percent net <laughs> net margin. Whereas you look at uh, a commodity producer, might be on three, four percent, five percent if they're really, really, really good. Yeah. You don't get to charge those margins or, or, yeah. or operate at those margins without some kind of economic moat mm-hmm. over a long period of time. Yep. Things like market share. What what what's the industry this this business operates in? How many players are there, and how many you know? What's what's the breakup of that? Is it a highly fragmented industry, or is it one where a few major players dominate? That's another good sign of a moat. Um, So you you sort of get evidence for it, and then I think it is beholden on you as an investor to then go out and say, well, what is it that allows this company to have delivered this? Was it a bit of a short term tailwind that just sort of you know um, helped juice things up a little bit, or is there something structural here? That, that allows them to charge a higher price um, or, or just to attract more customers than other people will that, that, that might otherwise be able to do, to do so if they just had the capital and built up a competing mm. business tomorrow. Mm. What, what is that? Mm. Um, and they do tend, that's what the great thing about the little book that builds wealth and there's others out there. Michael Porter does some great writing on this, which just talks about the types of moat and you will find that they fit in. So you, once you know about network effects, basically, is a good example then you'll say, oh, that makes perfect sense with eBay, which is the usual example or Visa and MasterCard are the old ones. But then you start thinking, well, that's exactly what's at play with zero. That's mm. exactly what's at play with realestate.com. Uh, mm, mm. And then, as you say, you sort of, well, oh, there's, I've got more expan- uh, examples in my in my mental armory, and then you'll you'll see you'll see mm. those factors at play elsewhere as well. So, oh man, you're such an exciting part of the journey. If I wish I, I wish I knew more about moats and these kinds of things at an earlier age, because that they're the, they're the real things to sort of focus on. <laughs> um, yeah. But just keep reading. Just keep reading to answer the question. Read, read, read. Be a learning machine, and that's that is that is the best investment you can possibly make. Yep, I think that's exactly right, mate. I think um, the, other, the other thing, by the way, Nick, is not everything in investing. You, in investing, you get no points for originality and you get no points for degree of difficulty. And lastly, you can steal other people's idea without paying for them. So mm. quite honestly, reading in terms of just expanding your knowledge of the theory of investing, so things like business models and moats, um, read Good to Great, read all these books we talked about the other day, um, Jump in and just really, you know, get get deep into the stuff. It's really super important. Um, and then, frankly, look around because you, to your point about do they hire them? Very rarely. Um, and if you're reading investment cases in, yeah, grab the AFR or the Australian or whatever, whatever financial so section you, you prefer to read. Business will talk about it uh, and and kind of you know whether it's straw man or whether it's the Motley Fool or something else. It, it is cumulative. Quite honestly, the honest there's no easy way to do it, right? As you say, um, some of them are easy. Network effects are relatively easy to find. Scale, kind of easy to find because size tends to beget size. Patents, uh, you will find that it, you don't necessarily know what the patent is or, or you won't find the patent filing. But if you think about a business that does something unique and special, you can kind of probably imagine what it might be. So, for example, cochlear or resmed in the medical technology space or um, nanosonics that we've talked about before. That, you know, it's, it's worth making sure they have a patent, but it's not, a, not an unreasonable thing to assume that they might have something special or different or unique about them. Uh, same in biotechnology, right? Most of the big pharma companies have patents on their drugs, otherwise everyone else would make them. So once you're going to know where sort of businesses that have them, you can go looking for them a little bit easier. That's one way to do it. Processes are super hard. Resource locations, again, I... I, I I don't know if I don't know if I don't know if I came from from Mars. How long would it take me to get this stuff un, under my belt, Ram? So I think honestly, Nick, just yeah, just keep absorbing, mate. And if you can't find them, go on to something else, and eventually you'll see them pop up. For example, we know you know resource location, a great one. This is just the um, the Pilbara in WA. 
you know, iron ore mines, listen to us, by the way, we'll help you. Um, iron ore mines are often described as supply chains with a hole at the end, right? Because the mine is the mine is the mine. But if you're selling something, imagine, like, I know it's 200 bucks a tonne now, but often they're selling for $40 a tonne, $50 a tonne. Imagine a tonne of iron ore in front of you. And imagine putting that from the hole in the ground, or not even a hole yet, some ground into a sh- onto a ship, literally with everything else involved for, well, BHP and Rio do it for $12, $15 a tonne, $18 a tonne. It's phenomenal. And so that gives you a sense of scale. It gives you a sense of resource location being important. Now, now we've told you about that. You know that stuff and you can look for those sort of things. But they're kind of the idea. Regulation, kind of similar. Um, you, you might know, for example, the Crown has, has uh, casino licences and you might know those licences are um, unique. And uh, Transurban has agreements with governments not to introduce competing toll roads. Um, so, yeah, yeah, you've got to look for them to be fair. But once you, once you come across them, it should ring those bells. It's reminded me of something, mate, that it's – the question could have been also asked of like how do I become a really good piano player or yeah. how do I hit a really good drive, uh, you know, yeah. with, with golf? The, the, the answer is mm-hmm. it's, it's <laughs> the effort, right? Like yeah. It's, yeah. And this is one of the things yeah. I think that's really un- underrated is that it's, it's, it's kind of guaranteed. Like I, I will never be as good as Tiger Woods no matter how many swings of the golf club that I have. But at the same time, I am guaranteed to be multi- magnitudes, orders of magnitude yeah. better than I am yeah, today. Yeah, yeah, if yeah, I yeah. said, right, I'm going to do four <laughs> hours every day of this for the next yeah, day, it's going to be, yeah. right? It's the same with investing. And and the thing is that you don't need to be the best in the world. You really, if you're in the top <laughs> decile, if you're in the top quintile, you're in the top quarter or yeah, something, yeah, yeah, you, can, yeah. you can expect really, really outsized returns. Yeah, exactly. Um, but it just takes work. And yeah. But but it, as you say, it does compound and yeah. you do just pick up and you learn lessons in the, in the, in the heat of battle that can be really <laughs> painful. But that's yeah. cool because then you, once you've made a mistake, you don't yeah. tend to make it too many times again. So it's just, yeah, read, throw yourself into it. Yep. What a journey. Um, I'll mention again Buffett's letters too, only because he spent 50 years, well, probably 40 years, writing about some of these businesses, some of these ideas. Um, just, just absorb as much as you possibly can, Nick, and, and add it to your knowledge bank and you'll become a better investor over time. All right, question from Lee. Hi, Scott and Andrew. I'm new to this podcast stuff, but I love your show. Thank you, Lee. Uh, Lee, don't forget, there's another podcast coming out. It's called The Good Oil with Scott Phillips. I hear it's pretty good. Um, <laughs> Lee says, I think I'm opening an account for my 20-year-old daughter. Awesome. I'm thinking of Vanguard ETF, probably the Vanguard Global ETF. If I start her off with a couple of thousand dollars, but then I want to put in, say, 25 bucks a week, which I realize is not enough for one share, does this get held in a Vanguard account and when she has enough for a share, it automatically buys one? Or does she have to save up for enough for one share and then buy? What are your thoughts? Keep up the good work for all us newbies and full on. Kind regards, Lee. Fantastic question, Lee. Thank you. Do you want this one around or do you want me to take it? Oh, man, we, we should be rename ourselves to the ETF uh, Q&A show because we, we get a lot of questions <laughs> Don't we? Don't on, we? on ETFs. Oh, for good reason. I love yeah, it. Look, I, I'll, I'm I'll just, I, yeah, yeah. I'll, look, I'll, I'll just say that um, I, I think if you're doing it, buying it directly, well, you will need at least to have enough money for for one unit yeah. Um, yeah. If, you, if you're buying it on market. But don't, yeah. you know, just, just wait till you – I wouldn't do it too often either because you're going to pay a fortune in brokerage. So there's yeah. nothing wrong with doing it. I mean, if you can do it every month, great. But if you could just do it once a year, that's great too. And if you can yeah, do it once it. every six months, save up until you've – I would sort of say at least sort of $500 or so just yep. to make the brokerage le- more, more digestible. And yep. you still get most of the benefit. I mean, things don't move that radically that often that, in that mm-hmm. sh- short time frames that you'll still get the benefits of dollar cost averaging. So, yep. yeah, I wouldn't be buying $25 worth of units each week. 
Yep, I think that. No, I think that's exactly right. Um, you, I'm trying. To, what's the unit price of the VGS? You know, let me quick look it up quickly and find out. It is currently 101 bucks. So if you're doing 25 bucks a week, once a month you got 100 bucks. But as Ram says, you want to be trading at least 500 bucks to go, preferably a thousand. So I, yeah, I'd probably put it aside and then maybe you know once a once a year, maybe on a birthday or something, just for the fun of it. Um, throw throw one more share on top of that. It oh, sorry, ten more shares to be at that point. It, it don't be discouraged by the small amounts. Um, is the thing I'd say. Um, you know, there's there's it, some shares are worth even more than this per share. And the important thing is not how many individual shares. We've talked about pieces of pizza before. It's how big each one is and what you're adding. So if you're adding a thousand bucks a year, then hey, over over the long term, that's going to add up to a really really meaningful amount. Particularly if the market compounds at ten percent a year, at ten stupid if it's nine or eight or seven, um, that the value you're creating is huge. And I've said before, by the way, it's absolutely about the dollars you can put into your daughter's account, so she'll really appreciate that. But it's also the lessons that hopefully you can share with her and she'll learn about investing along the way. And that'll be, I would say to you, over the fullness of her life, as valuable as the cash you're putting to work, but the cash makes it real and that's what makes it valuable. So well done. Mm. Yep. Um, let's go to a question from Harvey. Harvey says, Dear Motley, my question may be best directed for the investment team. Okay, we've done that. I'm happy for it to be asked through one or uh, asked through one or the podca- of the podcast or online. Sorry, there we go. I'm not sure if it's been answered previously. I have a large savings nest egg. Let's say for argument's sake, 30 grand. Is this better suited to be invested through an ETF or to get interest from the bank? I'll get this one first. Uh, Harvey, we can't give you personal advice. Uh, what I will say to you is interest from the bank is absolutely rock solid, guaranteed and locked in as long as there's a, a, a bank out the government guarantee covers. So if you're looking to make sure you never, ever, ever have any volatility or lose any money or the capital never goes down, then cash in the bank is better. If you have the time frame and if you have the uh, stomach for um, volatility and to let time do its thing, then history would suggest that rarely, if ever, has cash been a better invested than shares, a better investment than shares. So I can't tell you what's going to happen next. Uh, we could be in for a 25-year bear market and shares may never go up again. Chances of that are remarkably low, as in as close to zero as I can imagine. But I'm, I can't, I can't tell you. It couldn't possibly happen because it's possible, not likely, but possible. On the flip side, if you look at, we talked about the Vanguard index chart in the past. If you just Google Vanguard index chart 2021 and look at the return of shares versus cash over 30 years. If you're looking to maximise your returns, at least historically speaking, cash has done terribly, terribly poorly compared to money invested in the stock market. So if it was me, if I had 30 grand and I was putting it away for five plus years, I would happily buy an ETF and I wouldn't leave it in cash, but everyone's different. Ram? Yeah, 100% agree. Cash, Cash very short term, always shares long term. Question from Brent. Hi, guys. Thanks for doing the podcast. I only found it recently and enjoy the tips and the humour. That must be me, mate, I assume. (laughs) <laughs> it depends if they're laughing with you or at you. Actually. Well, yeah, yeah. You know what? It doesn't matter. That's the beauty of it, right? As long as I'm amusing someone, as long as I don't have thick enough skin, who cares why they're laughing as long as they're laughing? Job, job done. <laughs> I have a question, says Brent, regarding dollar cost averaging and diversification. If you have, say, 15 to 20 stocks and want to add 500 bucks a month, how do you go about dollar cost averaging? I have three favorite stocks to hold for the long term plus a few ETFs. Should I just rotate through them investing in one at a time or pick the one that's lowest at the time relative to its recent share price? Or is there a better method? I'd love to hear your thoughts. Thanks, Brent. Your turn first, mate. That's another similar kind of thing. Um, yeah, look, I, I kind of think uh, this is something you, you can overthink. Um, I would probably be the type of person who would play it as, as 
this way, which is I've got a list of, of companies that I mm. think are really great and I've got next to them, I've got prices that I think are reasonably mm. fair. And over the, at the same time, I'm trying to keep things pretty balanced. You know, yeah. I, I, things that we weighted towards how cheap they are and how high quality they are. But generally speaking, I sort of want to have it pretty spread out. So what I will do is when I find I have a bit of extra cash that's sitting there that's ready to deploy, I probably will favor the thing that I see as the best opportunity right now, regardless of what I paid for it on the proviso that it's not already a major holding there, like, you mm-hmm. know, um, I, I pro- just for waiting considerations. But I, I think you can, yeah. I think you can absolutely play it like that. Um, obviously, if you're doing this to the same company each and every time, it's just <laughs> going to get too big and then, that be- then it becomes, yeah. becomes silly. So you just want to make sure right. that, that you're doing it or, or you could just play it much more, much, much more straight bat and just mm. divide that pool of cash up each time and, and, and commit to putting it to a few. Um, but as long as you're keeping an eye on, on the on the weightings within your portfolio, I don't think there's anything wrong with favouring some companies because because of their current value and quality propositions. Mate, my turn to say I don't have much to add. Uh, with only uh, with only one thought, I suppose, um, Jason, don't look at relative to its recent share price. <laughs> when after oh, I went yes. from sixty to eighty, it was still worth buying if you knew it was going to go to one hundred and twenty. Equally, Domino's went from sixty to thirty and went to one hundred and thirty. So one went up, one went down. They both went up over the long term. Don't pay literally zero attention to past prices. Yes, literally zero so attention. important. Yeah. Um, so now winners tend to keep on winning. So look at businesses that grow, and over time share prices that grow, maybe. But yeah, please don't don't just buy again. You would you would have missed Afterpay and bought Domino's. That's not no terrible thing. Um, but frankly, you know, yeah, just just buy buy the one that seems cheapest relative to its long term future potential. Now you do say if you have got fifteen to twenty stocks, how do you go about it? Then you say you have got three favorite stocks plus a few ETFs. They're kind of different questions. That's my last, my, my last, all the different circumstances. My last point is if you genuinely have 15 to 20, then do what Ram says. If you've got three stocks and three ETFs, for example, if you keep adding to all of them, those three stocks are going to be really seriously overweighted in your portfolio. If you, even if you rotate through them, you're going to have a sixth of your portfolio in one company, which is the best part of what, 17%. Uh, I don't think I would try to get 17% in one. If you end up with it, like Ram with Prometicus on Friday, and you end up with it being a big <laughs> chunk, then great, right? Uh, drink. But uh, but but I wouldn't aim to I wouldn't aim to try to build a portfolio with just that. So if you're saying you're going to fifteen to twenty, you're absolutely right. If you are just staying with three favourites plus ETFs, then just be a little bit careful to Ram's point about diversification and the weighting of individual companies. Yeah, Question I'm glad five. you added that oh, part. Sorry, of, I'm just going to say I'm glad, really glad you added that part about price at the end, and that's that's why I said at the beginning, you have have the comp, the wish list, but also have next to them a price you think is fair, which is not where it's been, or you know, right. it's about what you right. think is fair. So yeah, really right. important point. Yep. In hindsight, some companies are always too expensive, and the others, in hindsight, others are always too cheap. Uh, mm-hmm. the, the price price won't tell you either. Yep. Here's a comment slash question. Dunk says, "Hi, Andrew." Don't know why he's talking to you, but anyway, Dunk, just lift your game. Uh, for Catapult to create meaningful growth and become a billion-dollar company as opposed to a million-dollar company, I think he just means in the billions rather than the millions, I think they have to get into more mainstream wearables like watches. The advancement of amateur sport is fraught with danger and can only ever be a small part of their business. Love to hear your opinion. My opinion is they can't compete with Apple on the watch front, but they need to use their access to top clubs to create an ecosystem. I think this is the buzzword these days, he says. It is. That generates recurring revenue for Catapult, the club, and the player. They can also create a regulated social media for stars and fans to engage. Gaming, too. I won't go know how it would work, although given that's what's already available, it shouldn't be too hard to start and build on. The must, he says, is they can't take their eye off the current core business as this creates the stickiness that will allow the wearables to create momentum and profits to build the ecosystem. 
Cheers for now. Dunk. What do you reckon, mate? Oh, God, such a big question. I'm going to try and do, try and do it quickly because I've got so much to say on this. Um, so I do own, <laughs> own Catapult shares. I have for a long time. I've done really well out of them despite the being a very bumpy well ride. Um, but I would say this. They actually tried to make more of a move into what they call the prosumer segment, yeah. which is sort of above above the Fitbit but below the super elite stuff that they mm-hmm. give to all the, all the top-tier athletes. <laughs> and it was actually a really bad move for them. It didn't work out well at all. They, they really pulled mm-hmm. back on that front. So I would actually say you're right. They don't. Yeah. They they can't compete with Apple in the consumer space, and they shouldn't. Um, they've tried, and hopefully they've learned their lesson there. Maybe right. there's some optionality down the track at, at the tier that's <laughs> above that. As I say, the prosumer, and they've they've still got a bit yeah. of a toe in the water there. Yeah. Um, but but for me, the argument is the opportunity is in the elite sport. So there's ten thousand or something elite elite sporting teams around the world. This is. These are these are organizations which have budgets in some cases of hundreds of millions of dollars, you know, like the mm. Dallas Cowboys or the LA Lakers <laughs> yeah. or the Australian rugby. You know, these yeah. are these are huge organizations, and that is where catapult strength uh, lies. That's where it's got the, the biggest opportunity. Mm. Mm. So I think I think that they can be. My view is I think they can be successful without ever getting any mm. cut mm. of of the uh, of the consumer market. And in fact, I hope they stay away from it because it's not their core competency, and they've been burnt when they've tried to. Do it before and there's a lot more i could say on all of that. <laughs> um but I, I i i genuinely like uh catapult i think they've had some poor uh, missteps uh mm-hmm. in the past mm-hmm. but if you think if this, here's my broad thesis um if you think elite sport is not going to go away and as an industry is only going to get bigger which for me mm-hmm. i think is, is guaranteed if you think that these organizations are going to be doing more around internet of things and data and what what kind of value that throws yeah. off, just whether yeah. whether that's just for broadcasters or whether it's for play at home apps and fantasy football. Like mm-hmm. it, it is huge. They just made an acquisition into Formula One and the data around that. You can actually get this, Scott. I'm going way off tangent here. But you can you can actually race in real races against real drivers at home on your computer. With that's all cool. of the all of the telemetry fed back to the guy. Like, we are at <laughs> We are at the dawn. I, I think Catapult has a huge role to play, and I'm talking very long term here. They, they, mm. The company's grown at 20% compound on its top line for, for many, many, many years. Um, anyway, I'm going way off topic here. I, I like it, but I, I do not like it for, for the uh, consumer wearables potential. Nice, mate. Love it. Uh, I, I wonder, uh, as you mentioned that, I'm actually now wondering if they get into being acquired by a, a gaming company rather than a sports analytics company. It'd be a fascinating Could it? Yeah, but they're a data company. That's the way to yeah, think of them, yeah, right? They're, they're, yeah. they're capturing, and by the way, they don't make it much noise. They own the data there as well. So if yeah. you want to find out what your your star quarterback has been doing for the last few seasons and how they've improved, <laughs> every metric that you can possibly measure, yeah, yeah. And you want to tell yeah. me that's not valuable and you don't want to tell me there's not network effects at play for, for an industry like yeah, this? Nice. I don't know. I like it. I like it. All right. We might, uh, we've got time for one more from Dave. G'day, Scott and Ram. I love the podcast and the mailbag. I especially like it when you disagree. It's great to hear two views argue with good reasoning and you still do business and are friends at the end of the day. Well, we do our best. I, I put up with him to put it that way. I guess it's kind of like how the stock market It's okay, it's works, okay right? if you want to be wrong, mate. <laughs> <laughs> what does Charlie Munger say? He's like, you're smart and I'm right, so you'll work it out eventually. <laughs> 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 oh dear. All right. A couple of questions. Take your pick or do both. We'll try and squeeze them in. I'm 35, have a couple of investment properties, about halfway paid off, maximizing concessional contribution to super, and have a bit left over each payday to invest. I'm totally on board with the strategy of dollar cost averaging. Speaking of what you were saying before, you know, a couple of broad based ETFs. Set and forget, go surfing. My question is how do you actually set up a DCA deposit? 
It seems like paying $14.95 brokerage on a fortnightly $1,000 investment isn't a great deal. Investment bonds have a free direct deposit, but I know you don't love the fees and performance. Any suggestions for other DCA methods? What do you reckon, mate? Well, some companies will give you an opportunity if they have dividend reinvestment plans. Mm -hmm. I think it only really makes much of a difference if it's an income-oriented type of investment. But they are great because you don't pay brokerage and you often get a bit of a discount and it just sort of compounds away nicely. So that that, that can be pretty cool. Other than that, you just have to do it manually. And that's just an answer to the other other listener's question. Just just Mm -hmm. save up until you've got a reasonable amount to invest so brokerage doesn't eat it away. Mm -hmm. I I would say that if you're putting a thousand bucks away every six months or so, you know, even if you're paying a lot of broke, even if you're paying fifty dollars a trade. I mean, I get, I get the maths. I, I really do. It's not, it's yeah. not insignificant. But you're still doing. If at the end of the day, it means that you're investing and you're investing regularly. Yeah, I think it's a, right. it's a worthwhile price to pay. But yeah, do it, do what you can to minimize it by spreading it out and doing it with with as large a sum of money as you can. Yeah, mate. I'm gonna, I'm gonna give a rap to a broker. Um, I know these guys a little bit. I've spoken to them. I got no, no other commercial, no commercial engagements with them at all. But I've spoken to them a couple of times. Um, they're brand new. They're only small, and I won't even. I'll give it a qualified recommendation, not because I'm worried about them, just because I don't know them well enough to be absolutely, um, uh, you know, just just you know, directly positive. The company is called Perler, P-E-A-R-L-E-R. Um, they're good guys. I, I love their slow get get rich slowly kind of um, approach to investing. For all of the usual, you know, over trade here, all, all the brokers want to get trade, 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 trade. These guys are like, no, no, you know what? We want to help you build long term wealth. Uh, investing should be boring. Just be boring with us. I just think it's a really, it's a really cool, different way of thinking about investing. Quite frankly, and it's not very common. Uh, so I'm really, really, I think they're doing a really, really great job, which is awesome. I think from a um, the other thing. So the reason I mention them is a because I like them, and I've, I don't use them as my main broker. I've said many times I use Comsec, but I've just started um, using Perla just to try it out on the side. So again, bear that in mind. I've just started with it. Maybe it ends up not. I maybe end up not loving it. So you know, take your pick. But what I like about them is they do a couple of things. The first is you can direct deposit into, or they'll actually automate a withdrawal from your savings account to their brokerage cash account. So I've set it up to take a certain amount of money every month out of my savings account and move it across to my Perla cash account. Second thing is I can then separately say and then buy shares that I nominate when I have this much cash in my account. So for me, it turns out that I'm buying shares, I think it's every two months. I deposit every month. Uh, but then the cash amount I'm, I'm adding up to hits the threshold every two months, every second month. And so they go and buy shares that I've told them to buy in an automatic investment plan, which is exactly what you're asking for, Dave. So I won't say it's I said perfect. I haven't used it long enough to have a, a, a long-term view, but I like the guys. They're good people. They're trying to do it the right way. And that's exactly what you're trying to do, mate, is deposit regularly and then buy regularly. But Pearl lets you do those two on separate um, timeframes. So if it's $1,000 a fortnight, I think you said, but you might want to invest when you get $2,000 in the account, you simply say, right, Pearl, I'll take 1000 bucks a month, uh, a fortnight out of my account and invest when I get to $2,000 or whatever whatever combination. So if Pearl is not for you, that's okay. I said, I'm not pushing it. I have nothing to gain from it other than I like what they're trying to do or setting out to do. And that's pretty cool. Uh, let's go to the second question, mate, then we'll finish up. You've discussed, says Dave, when to sell in brackets if there's a better opportunity to invest your money or when to hold forever and pass on to your kids. Now, I like this, mate. He says, but when do you actually sell to spend? I'm 35, he says. So working backwards, that's 30 years until I start spending my super. 20 years until I sell an investment property and use those proceeds, maybe to pay off the home. So maybe I need an investment with a 10-year horizon that I can sell and enjoy when I'm 45. 
I get the maths of not interrupting compounding and I do understand wanting to set up a nice nest egg to pass on, but surely if we all become full investing multi-millionaires, we want to enjoy it. Cheers and full on, Dave. It's a good question, mate, right? Like we, you and I in the investing community talks about this compounding thing as if it just is endless. But when you actually start spending it, so that I, I, you and I are both very, 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 very young. Uh, but hypothetically, <laughs> look, looking, looking into the future, do you have a, a, a thought on the answer to that question? Yeah, I do. I've got a really clear thought on it, actually. So it's it's one of those things that's it's, it's like Buffett's, you know, investing is is simple but not easy kind of yeah. thing. Yeah. So when you should sell is the easy answer to that question is whenever there's a better use for the money. Yeah. Now, in an investing lens, the, the better use for the money might be something that has a better risk reward proposition, mm-hmm. higher upside, whatever it, whatever it might be. But I would also extend it to just thinking about, well, there are absolutely real and and valuable psychological factors at play that come from going on a holiday, um, yeah, yeah. buying yourself the occasional present, having a yeah, house yeah. that you that, that you're comfortable in, and, and all the rest of it. So there's, yeah. y- yes, that is going to stop uh, the compounding, but there is there is a for some. I'm not a car guy, but I've got mm. friends who are massively into their cars, and yeah. they just cannot justify it from a financial standpoint. <laughs> Yeah. It's the stupidest investment ever, but um, but yeah, but it it brings them such joy, and it yep. is such a focus and big part of their life. I'm the last person to say they shouldn't be doing that. So, yeah, nice. so I think you just, at one hand, there's there's always a compromise to be made. You can't go yeah. full tilt. <laughs> if you're the kind of then there's a lot of examples of this. I won't think of any of the names, but those those spinster billionaires who die penniless living in a cardboard box <laughs> that then their family finds that they've got a portfolio worth $40 million yeah, yeah, or something. Yeah. That's that's too far up one end of the spectrum. Or yeah. you're the other person who just lives in the moment and spend, like money just falls through their fingers. And that's that's not at a, also not at a good place. But there is a there is a middle ground, as the as the Buddhists would say, that's in there where you get to where you get to make sure that you're looking after your future, you've got some mm. money working hard, compounding away, but you get to, you know, smell the roses on the way through. Nice, yeah. I so I mean that's that's the I guess that's the the, the when or maybe the what. Um, I've surprisingly enough because I, as I said you and I are very 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 young. But as I do think about the next X number of years of my working, investing, compounding, living life, I do I am starting to think about like you know at what point might I want to say you know what I'm loving working for the Motley Fool. I'm loving working investing, but it's been thirty years. Maybe I'll go back to four or three days a week, and maybe I'll supplement that with something for my savings, right? Or maybe I'll go and travel around Australia for a year or whatever whatever it is that you want to sort of do and you just have to start thinking about that. I, I, can I say from me, what I, because I've spent so much time thinking about compounding, it actually kind of physically hurts to think about actually not compounding that, that last dollar. Like I'm kind of like, so I can take the money out, but oh, if I do the maths, you know, it's you know, <laughs> 10 grand now is worth 20 grand in, in seven years and 40 grand seven years after that, 80 grand seven years after that, and 160 grand. I'm like, so if I take that out, you know, it's, it's one of those kind of, you know, oh, it's going to hurt. Um, mm. But yeah, look, I, I, you know, I think... I'm thinking about, for me, any, well, depends on what your, your life goals are, as you said, around. I'm thinking more about turning my portfolio into, into a passive income stream at some point. So to the point, I wouldn't, Dave, I wouldn't, I, I'm hoping not to or planning not to sell to spend. I'm hoping to hold to harvest the income from to spend. And so everyone's different. And for me, that's hopefully some or all or a portion of my portfolio. I can say, you know what, instead of earning 10% a year, I might take 3 4% dividends and let the rest compound and do its thing. And I'll add that to supplement my income while I'm working. Maybe I'll go up to two or three days a week, four days a week, or maybe I'll take a year off or you know whatever it is. And so hopefully for me, it's a combination of both. I'm not intending to sell and get a lump sum to buy a fast car unless I have a midlife crisis in the meantime. I haven't got any hair, so I can't have a ponytail. 
Um, so you know, I, I, I'm not. I don't. Te- maybe I will. Maybe I'll. Maybe I'll buy an expensive car and caravan and drive around Australia. Or, you know, go and put a cruise ship for a year and spend. You know, God knows how much money that costs or whatever. So I, I, I'm not ruling out doing it. But for me, I'm I'm trying to think about compounding long enough. So at some future point, it won't be 45 for me because I might be just slightly past that. Um, but at some future point, hopefully I can start to say, right, my portfolio is now big enough and generating enough potential for passive income that I can start to just basically turn around from a compounding machine only to part compounding, part income. Or maybe it gets to a point where it's like, you know what, I'll take the income. I won't compound anymore. I'll let it sit there and just generate yearly income year after year after year and pay for my retirement at whatever, not sorry, at 65, but whatever time I choose to give up work and go and do something else. Maybe there's grandkids, maybe there's travel, maybe there's something else. I'll, I'll use that that cash for that. Any more thoughts yeah, on that, each mate? To the, no, just each, each to their own, you know. Yeah. You, do, they're just, you just got to understand there's a compromise that, that you know, <laughs> one, 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 on one hand you're giving up future savings, on the other hand you're yeah. giving up enjoying, enjoying yourself. So there's, there's, you've just got to strike a balance that's right for you. You and I have got bigger issues, uh, Dave. Ram's going to sell strawman.com for billions of dollars and, and go sailing. So uh, he, he doesn't have to worry about these <laughs> things. We so. have, to, have to think about what, uh, what we might do so. with this stuff. <laughs> Uh, that, that'll do us, mate. We, we've gone more than an hour, which we frankly tend to do more often than we should. Uh, but hopefully you've enjoyed hearing the questions and our answers from that. You can follow us on social, and I hope you will. Um, you can follow Andrew at Sage underscore Simeon or at Strawman Invest, the Rams to, to uh, Twitter accounts. You can follow me on Insta and Twitter at the same handle. That's at TMF Scott P. The Motley Fool uses the same handle for both accounts as well. Twitter and Instagram at The Motley Fool AU. If you want to jump onto Facebook, it's just simply forward slash The Motley Fool Australia or forward slash Scott Phillips Money. And if you want to send us an email, you can do that. Today's email, today's question, I think we're all email questions actually. So that's info, I-N-F-O at fool.com.au. I don't know about you, but I'm old enough that I forgot long things to type by prayer email. Short things are fine for social. So whichever one of those you want to hit us up on, feel free. And again, follow us on the socials anyway, because hopefully we've got some fun stuff to share. And we love a chat with our followers. So, so please do that as well. I did mention at the top of the show, there's a new podcast coming out, which I hear is going to be excellent run by some bloke called Scott Phillips. Search for, and please do subscribe to, please, for me, The Good Oil with Scott Phillips is the, the phrase you need to apparently type in the, the search engine just to make sure you find our particular podcast. They tell me eventually you can just type in The Good Oil, it'll come up, but because it's brand, brand, brand new, and the first episode drops on Tuesday, get ahead of it, search The Good Oil with Scott Phillips, subscribe to that, hit the little subscribe button for me. Uh, do me a favour because I'd really appreciate it. Uh, it costs you nothing, and if you enjoy it, then hey, you've even gained something from it. If you hate it, don't tell anyone, just subscribe anyway, because it makes the numbers look better. And uh, again, I'd rather not have to front up to the good people at Listener or my boss and explain why we're doing a podcast that no one listens to. So do me a favour, The Good Oil with Scott Phillips. And until then, and until next week, next Friday, with Andrew and I, full on. Full on. The Motley Fool and people appearing in this program may have positions in the companies mentioned. General advice only. Please speak to your financial professional to understand how it may pertain to your situation. Subscribe to the free newsletter at fool.com.au forward slash listener. The Motley Fool operates under financial services licence 400691. Listener.